Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. And we're going to read, beginning with verse 22, to the end of that chapter in the book of Genesis. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in whichever version of the Bible you have in hand. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Now Jacob arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Now, if you'll keep your place there and turn to the Gospel of John. We've been studying the book of John, and we're in the 11th chapter of the book of John. The background of what we have studied from the 11th chapter so far is the impending death of a friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus. Jesus was not only friendly with Lazarus, but also his sisters, Martha and Mary. Jesus was a frequent guest in their home. And they, finding their brother ill, sent a a messenger to Jesus to notify him of Lazarus' illness, fully expecting that Jesus would make a beeline for their home in Bethany and bring their brother back to good health because of his love for them and for their brother. Now, Jesus delayed four days. That's a long time, isn't it? He shocked his apostles in that situation. They figured he would just go right ahead. He shocked Martha and Mary. Well, let's just read verses 14 through 16 of John 11. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, 
said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas was the Eeyore of the apostles. He never said anything positive, it seems, except in this text of Scripture. There is this underlining pessimism in this particular exchange between Thomas and his comrades about going with Jesus. He might have been a pessimist. We know he was also an empiricist. I had to look that word up to get a good word that kind of went along with pessimist. But an empiricist is a person who only believes what he can see with his eyes, touch with his hands. And you remember, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, do you remember what happened? The first appearance which Jesus made to his apostles was in the upper room. And the only apostle, with the exception of Judas, we know Judas had already gone out and hanged himself. He was a defector, not a true apostle to begin with. But the only one who was absent was Thomas. Shortly after Jesus had left the company of his apostles, they were so elated, they were so excited, Jesus had in fact fulfilled the promise that he had given them before he went to die on the cross. He would come again. So Thomas comes in, and they tell him what they had seen. And in his own way, he said to them, Unless I put my finger in the prints of the nails in his hands, unless I can put my fist up in his side where the centurion's spear thrust up through his abdomen into his heart, I will not believe in him. Well, he was one who probably coined the motto or the phrase, seeing is believing. He was a doubter. But Jesus does not necessarily frown on your doubting. I hope you know that. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus had appointed a place for the apostles to meet him. And they went to a particular mountain before he ascended into heaven. And the scriptures say, when they saw him, they worshipped him. And the word which is picked by Matthew, who was one of those who had seen Jesus in that particular situation, is a word which means to fall flat on one's face in adoration. They flattened out in the presence of the Lord. They worshipped him, all of them. But then the text says something that, we wouldn't expect after the Scripture says that they worshipped Him. It says, but some doubted. They were already believers, but they still had some doubts. One wonders if Thomas might not have been one of those individuals. But in this particular passage, Jesus says something that really is striking to me, and I hope it would be to you in verse 15. He says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. There meaning the place where Lazarus died. That seems strange, doesn't it, that Jesus would make such a statement? But he was glad for the sakes of these apostles, including Thomas. He was glad because he knew that when they did arrive in Bethany, in the graveyard, where the corpse of Lazarus had been rotting for four days, he knew that he was going to resurrect him from the dead, raise him from the dead, and it would fortify their faith. It would be one more evidence of His being the Messiah and also being 
the Son of God. And he was glad for them. And then he says, so that you may believe, but let us go to him, meaning to Lazarus. Now, hadn't these close associates, whom we know as the apostles, already believed in Jesus? Why, yes, they had. In John 2.11, we are told they had. But we saw in John 6.69 that they believed in him. And they believed many times in between that. They were believers, but they needed to continue in their belief. Listen to what Martin Luther says about us who know Jesus. He says, He who is a Christian is not a Christian. Come on, Luther. What are you doing? Playing with words? And this is really what he was doing. He was saying, there never is a point in your life or my life that we do not need to continue to grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always, as followers of Jesus, in a position of becoming more faithful, more mature. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, as he wrote to the Philippians, he makes this statement, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made mature or complete or perfect. Not that I'm there yet. Now, Paul had been following Jesus for 30 years. He had written a large portion by this time of what we know as our New Testament. And he says, I'm not perfect yet. I'm still in process. And the truth of the matter is that you and I, no matter where we find ourselves on the continuum of following Jesus in this life, we still need to grow. We're always in a position of becoming more faithful people. The Scripture says in verse 16, if you look again in reference to Thomas, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. He is really setting the pace for the rest of them because they did not want to go. They assumed when they got there that they would die because there was the place that Jesus had just a few months earlier almost been stoned by the religious establishment of Israel. And they were sure that those people would be waiting on Jesus' return. There probably were lookouts everywhere. People who would send word to the leaders of the nation of Israel to come and to stone the Lord Jesus. And he said, come on. He might have been a negative man, and he was in many cases, but he was not a disloyal man. If Jesus was going to the place where he would die, count me in is what Thomas said. He was putting his money where his mouth was in terms of his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was a twin, Thomas was. Why do we know that? Well, actually, Thomas is the Hebrew word for twin. Didymus is the Greek word for twin. In his Hebrew name and in his Greek name, he was a twin. As I was preparing this message, it became clear to me that all of us, in a sense, each of us is a twin. He was a a person who could be positive in his faith, even though his nature was pessimistic. 
He was a man who showed faith, and other times he did not show faith. Is that not true of you sometimes? Do you show faith and not show faith? Of course, what we hope for and what we believe is we're going to continue to move to deeper levels of faith. And I'm sure that was the case with this man, Thomas. Now, where does Jacob come into this story? Well, Jacob was a twin. Physically, he was a twin. We read about it from the 25th chapter. Isaac was delighted when at the age of 40, he received a bride, Rebekah. We don't know how old she was, probably half his age, maybe even a little younger than that. And they were married and they loved each other. The Bible says, when Isaac saw the servant of Abraham bringing this maiden to him, he immediately loved her and said, love at first sight. He loved her. And it was a great relationship. But the thing that made it less than what it could have been was she had not born a child yet. It reminds me of a story I heard years ago about an emissary from Brazil. He was the ambassador from Brazil to the United States. Upon his arrival, within a few days, he received an invitation from the Secretary of State to come to the State Department headquarters, and there was going to be a gathering there to greet him and a couple of other new ambassadors to the United States from other countries. And beginning to engage this man from Brazil, who had a working knowledge of English, but he was not sure of every aspect of it. And in the course of the conversation, when the secretary was just getting to know him, he said, are you married? And the Brazilian secretary said, yes, I am. Why is it your wife with you tonight? And he began to explain, my wife stayed behind to take care of matters, to wind up the affairs of our home before she came to join me here in Washington. And then he said, do you all have any children? And the Brazilian looked at the Secretary of State and said, no, sir. You see, my wife is inconceivable. And immediately he knew he had said the wrong thing by the look on the secretary's face. And then searching for the right word, he said, actually, she's impregnable. And there was almost a look of horror on the secretary of state's face. And then he said, to be fully honest with you, she's unbearable. Well, (laughs) Rebecca was unbearable. She was barren, the text tells us. And it was a grievous thing. But when she did become pregnant, what happened? These twins in the womb, Jacob and Esau, they were wrestling with each other. And really, Jacob was the one who was fighting the hardest, I'm sure, because he was the second born. And the scripture says, when Esau came out of Rebekah's womb, there was a hand grabbing his heel. And it was the hand of his little brother, Jacob. And so the name given to Jacob was one who grabs the heel. It means a supplanter, a cheater, a manipulator. And he lived up to his name, actually. And it's amazing that the Bible tells us in both the Old Testament book of Malachi and also in the book of Romans that God says, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. 
If I were picking one of the two, actually, when I'm reading the story, I'm more drawn to Esau than to Jacob. But that just goes to show I'm not like God because he chose Jacob. It was his will to choose him, and he used him in a very significant way. But even in the life of Jacob, Jacob was representative of a godly man. From God's viewpoint, Esau, a godless man. Jacob would represent eventually a man in whom the Spirit dwelt and in whom the Spirit moved and through whom the Spirit worked. And Esau was a man of the world. He was all about the flesh. And he was a man who just lived to gratify his own personal desires. But in the life of Jacob, there were two men as well. And in all of our lives, we have this presence in our lives. The Bible talks about, in the book of Galatians chapter 5, about how in each of our lives, if we know Jesus, that there is a war which is being waged. It's being fought between the Holy Spirit of God and what the Bible calls our flesh. Our flesh is our selfishness. If you lop off the H at the end of the word flesh and flip it, you have the word self. So we who have committed ourselves to Jesus, we actually have twins internally. And we're fighting this battle. Now we know which entity is going to win. The Spirit of God is going to win, of course. This passage that we read from... Genesis chapter 32. If you have lost your place there, please go back. Yields us information about how to live the Christian life. I'm going to give you the first principle. And it's going to be stated negatively. It's simply this. The Christian life is not a life of self-reliance. In the case of Jacob... Jacob was a man who was already a believer in God by the time this happens that we read here in chapter 32. He had met God in a dream. He was approached by God and God showed him that he was real. And when he awoke from the dream, he said, Surely I did not know that God was in this place, but he is And he went on to say, I'm going to name this place Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. So he was a man who had some degree of faith and had had such faith for at least 20 years before chapter 32 of Genesis. However, Jacob knew God but didn't need God too much. Actually, he thought God needed him. Now, follow. He thought that he could help God. Therefore, he manipulated events in order to enable God to fulfill God's plan. All of us probably have wrestled with this from time to time, trying to help God do things. Well, what we need to understand that every time Jacob did this, he just made things worse. We know he had problems with Esau. He stole Esau's birthright. He deceived his father in order to do that. He stole the blessing also from Esau. 
It made Esau madder than a hornet to see this going on. Then he deceived his father-in-law, Laban. And he was able to take great wealth away when he finally was released by Laban to go after he had, in effect, indentured himself to his father-in-law in order to get Rachel to be his wife. And by the way, he got Leah, the older daughter, in the process. But each blunder had helping God as its motive. Have you ever done something like that? In your ignorance and in your immaturity spiritually... Have you seen yourself as one who needs to help God get things done? Well, God got, got along very well before you or I ever were on the scene, and He will after we're gone. That's not to say He doesn't use us. We know He does. But we have to understand what has to occur for Him to really use us. By the time we find Jacob here in the 32nd chapter He was a man of incredible success. He had 11 children, two wives, two concubines, which in effect were his wives. He was wealthy. And we see him crossing this river called Jabbok. And he crosses over with his family. He's given very clear direction to his servants as to how to separate them out so as to protect him, actually, but to protect them. He sends his concubines and their children, his sons, first in two shifts, and he sends then his wives, Leah and Rachel, Rebecca, rather, Rachel, rather, second. But he was protecting himself. And then let's look at the text of Scripture for a moment, looking back at chapter 32. After he took them across, look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone. This man was alone. Maybe for the first time in his life, he was alone. And he began to review the last 20 years. All the accumulation of wealth. The accumulation of a large family. And he was alone. Have you ever felt alone? Really alone? You may have been very successful in your life. You may have gained a lot of wealth and maybe a fine family, but you feel alone or have felt alone. All he could do at this time, he was accustomed to being a doer. He was a get-it-done kind of individual. But now all he could do was wait. He was waiting. He was hoping that when he did finally reunite with his brother Esau after 20 years, that Somehow, Esau would accept his peace offering. And he had sent 200 goats and 200 ewe sheep. He would sent 20 male goats and 20 male sheep or rams. He had sent camels. He had sent cattle. He had sent donkeys. He had sent all kinds of livestock to give as a peace offering for his brother. He was thinking about that, worrying what his brother, who was much superior to him physically, he was a man's man, Esau was, he wondered. Have you learned to wait on the Lord? If you are his child and you have lived a life of self-reliance, you will understand someday that 
God's going to call you to do nothing but wait. And he waited. The Bible says in Psalm 37, verse 5, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. The Bible says in the closing of Psalm 27, Wait on the Lord. The Bible is replete with commands to wait, wait, wait. Sometimes that's all we can do. The Christian life is not a life of self-reliance. Positively stated, we see this in the story of this man, Jacob, and also in Thomas's story, actually. The Christian life is a life of surrender. That's what it really is. The surrendering of our lives completely to the Lord. God, in this passage of Scripture, is described as wrestling with Jacob. And he wrestled with him to get him to surrender. In chapter 32, let's continue to read. In verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It's pitch dark. It seems like a man is wrestling with him, but it's God wrestling with him. Most scholars, and I would agree, think this is what is called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. And he is really wrestling with this man, Jacob. Look at verse 25. When he saw, this is the angel of the Lord, or Christ, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. God had been working on Jacob bit by little bit the 20 years previous to this event to secure his surrender. Jacob was a tough cookie to crack. He was. And in the verse 27, look what God says to him. 27. He said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. When he said Jacob, and he heard the sound of his own voice, I know it must have dawned on him. One who grabs the heel of. He'd heard the story of how even as a newborn, he grabbed the heel of his older brother Esau. He thought when he heard his own name coming out of his mouth that time, it probably had not dawned on him like it had previously. Cheater, supplanter, manipulator. But then we see what God says in verse 28. He said to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be Jacob. God was intent upon showing Jacob who he really was. In recognized weakness, there is strength. We see this in this story. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this about himself. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. You may recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, writing to that church, which was a very immature church, he says to them, I planted meaning I planted the seed of the Word of God. Apollos, who succeeded him, said, he said about him, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. In other words, I didn't make the church grow, nor did Apollos make it grow, but God was causing the growth. He was simply working through our weakness to accomplish this. Our recognition that it's not about me, 
in order to accomplish the will of God. Yes, God has called me to be a fellow worker with Him. But I must understand that the primary task on the front end of that is my surrendering myself to the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, this is what Paul goes on to say. So neither I nor Apollos is anything, but God is everything. Isn't that amazing? That's the lesson each one of us has to learn if we're going to be people whom God really uses. And if you know Him, I suggest that you will have an experience like Jacob, maybe not as dramatic, but nevertheless, God is interested in you. Has God ever wrestled with you thus far? Is He wrestling with you now? You've tried to stiff-arm Him, and it seems as though you've accomplished that task. But the reality is, you're not going to win that wrestling match. It's foolish to even think you can. But our flesh is strong, isn't it? It really is strong in its insistence upon self-reliance and self-will and expressing our own individuality. This was a dark moment. It was pitch black, but it was a dark moment in the soul of Jacob. A man by the name of St. John of the Cross, he was a middle centuries mystic. He talked about the dark night of the soul that he had experienced. How He was a follower of Christ and all of a sudden it seemed the light had gone out in his life even though the Lord was there. And it was a time of preparation in his life for this moment like Jacob's. Do you know God's not in a hurry in your life? Thank God He's patient with us. When God is working in us, we can know that He will accomplish what He's promised. That's what He says in Philippians 1, 6. I remember the story told about a young theological student who had heard his president of his college speak to the student body, and he was so excited about what lay ahead for him as a preacher of the gospel. And afterwards, he made his way to the president of the school and said, Sir, is there any quicker way, it's his first semester in school, is there any quicker way for me to get out of school with a diploma and then I can begin my work as a pastor evangelist? And then the principal or the president of the school very wisely said, Son, if you want to be a squash, God only takes six months to grow a squash. But if you want to be an oak tree, God takes a hundred years. So God is not in a hurry in terms of working on us. And I'm of the opinion, and I think there's evidence for this, that God never quits working in the lives of His children to make us more people of faith. Once Jacob surrendered, he was a different person. He was different physically because we've read... His hip came out of socket. Have any of you ever had a dislocated hip? I had one, but I'm glad I was knocked out when it happened. When I had a hip replacement. But there was no anesthesia for Jacob. And he was a different man physically. He was a broken man. But the main thing that we need to understand is what God was doing... 
in Jacob's life. He was giving him a new name. Look again at verse 28. God said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You know what Israel means? It means God rules. That's what it means. He went from having the name Jacob, which means cheater, supplanter, conniver, manipulator, to being God rules. It was an ever-present reminder to him that he was a new man after he had this encounter with God of surrender, learning that, hey, I can't do this by myself. I can't even partially do it by myself. I've got to give surrender fully to the Lord. In God's kingdom, losing is winning. Therefore, Jacob was able to go in God's strength after the sun rose, even though he was limping. He limped across the river Jabbok. And the Bible says he limped for the rest of his life as a reminder of what had happened that evening. But I don't think it bothered him in the strictest sense. He was glad for the reminder of his name and his physical condition as a result of what happened. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 46, verse 10, Cease striving and know that I am God. And in the last verse of that 46 Psalm, this is what the Bible says. Our God is the God of Jacob. Is that encouraging? God is the God of Jacob. He's the God of us, even in our self-reliance. He will not give up on you if you are His child. He will continue to work on you and work on you and conform you more and more to the image of His Son. Jesus Christ. God always wins. It's true. Go back to Thomas for just a moment as we near the end of this message. When Thomas finally saw Jesus, what was his response? What did he say to Jesus? When he saw him and Jesus proved to him that he was, in fact, risen from the dead... He fell at the feet of Christ. He said, My Lord and my God. That's quite a different Thomas, right? My Lord and my God. We need to see that Jesus does not blame us for wanting to be sure about who He is. Certainty is more likely to come to us when we approach Christ and we're with Him in a fellowship setting like this where we're with others who are seekers after the Lord as Thomas found himself in the upper room shortly after Jesus had departed having appeared to the disciples. God always wins. Why not surrender now? if you're still struggling against Him. Jacob's life was irrevocably changed that day and all for the better. And ours will be too when we make that kind of commitment to the Lord. Let's pray. If you are here this morning and you know that this message was for you in the sense that it pinpointed a need in your life to really fully surrender your life to the Lord.
Could you just pray this prayer to the Lord in your own heart? Dear Lord, I have been a self-reliant follower. Lord, I have reserved certain areas of my life for me. Lord, I have thought that you needed my help. And Lord, I want to tell you today, I know all those things are not true and they're not right. And they have served to hinder me from really being used by you and really following you. Lord, I want to surrender to you today fully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.